Morning everyone. A wonderful blessing to see you all. Okay. All these gadgets. Pass it over, mention that we need a bigger pulpit. I have mentioned it. Right, let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your infinite grace. The mercy, dear Lord, and the grace that we, um, we can't even begin to comprehend. We know that it was your grace that saved us. We know, dear Lord, that it's your mercy that, is, that has kept us from, uh, from falling. And we trust in you, dear Lord. We ask you, dear Father, you would help us to stop trusting in ourselves. That our freedom in our Lord Jesus Christ is that which has saved us and it's that which preserves us. And we have hope and know, dear Lord, that our end, dear Father, is a wonderful joy in the knowledge of our Saviour in heaven eternal, dear Father. And we have a message, dear Lord, that we can bring to all the people of this world. I just ask you, dear Father, you would be with us this morning, be with me, dear Lord, as I present your word. Father, hide me behind your cross, dear Lord, I pray. And help this be a wonderful blessing to all that would hear. Open our hearts and our minds to receive more of the truth in your, of your word. And help me speak clearly, dear Father, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. We've been, um, been going from, through the book of Romans now for, uh, this is coming on to the third year. Uh, of course, I'm not up here every, every Sunday, so it's been, but there's been about 18 messages now preached and we're only up to chapter 6. So there are a few, there are a few. We're, uh, we're starting the third, the third segment in Romans, uh, beginning at chapter 6. Um, I think we'll read. We'll read chapter, chapter 6. We're just going to read the first, the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that... Like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, shall we, shall also, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin." Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In, um, 
we have a camp, a youth camp, every year in uh, in Alexandra, and I'm I'm the master of the games. I'm the one that runs all the games. I have been for the last few years, and it's a and it's a wonderful blessing to see the joy of the kids and the and the and the and the wonderful time that they have. And with every game, you're, you're hoping that uh, that they would enjoy that. But most importantly, we're there for the Word of God. And the kids know that when the Word of God is preached, um, then there's a hope that kids might be saved. But not only that they'd be saved, but that the Christian kids that are there, their lives would change and change forever. Kids look forward to the games. It's great. There's one game in particular that they look forward to more than any other. It's the game that we traditionally play on the last night. I always joke around that we're not going to play it. Um, but it's the last night, and it's a nighttime game. It's a game called Underground Church. And it's my personal favourite game. Okay, I love this game. Um, it's a game that demonstrates the lack of freedom that's experienced in the vast majority of the world when it comes to church. We have a wonderful blessing that we can be out here in the open, our windows can be wide open, and we're not necessarily worried about persecution here in this country. But, but this game shows that the freedom that we experience here is not the freedom that's experienced elsewhere. Um, so Underground Church basically has two pastors involved. Uh, the pastors can be chosen among, chosen among the youth. Um, the pastors are to lead a congregational service of a minimum of a certain quantity of, uh, of the youth. They are to sing a hymn, recite a verse, and then they need to move on at least 100 metres away um, to have another service. Okay. Anyway, long and the short of it is they are, they are in complete darkness. In the meanwhile, all the leaders are walking around with torches. Our object is to find the pastors. Once we find the pastors, game over. The game is over. The students are then encouraged, or the youth are then encouraged, to protect their pastors, to do everything they can to ensure that their pastors are never caught. You know, that's something that the pastors really like. You know, so they sacrifice themselves for their pastors. Pastor Frank was here, he'd say, Amen. And that's what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be looking after and caring and making sure that they can still um, have the Word of God preached to them faithfully, and it's... Um, and we would take some of the students, they'd be marked on their hand if they've attended a service or not, and we would take some of these youth and we would bring them to prison. We would interrogate them. We have marvellous ways of doing this. And uh, they would be interrogated within their prison and perhaps let go, perhaps. Um, and again, we keep going until one by one the pastors are caught. A year ago, a year ago? Two years ago, we had two, three Burmese people that attended this game. They were a little bit startled by it, I have to admit. And they were able to share with some of the people that we're playing this as a game. We don't have this freedom in Burma. And what we experience in Burma is very much similar to the game. So it was a real reality for them. Because, see, we take for granted the freedom that we have in this country. We take for granted that, uh, that we can do and we can practice our faith, we can share the word of God, we can speak on the streets. But in most of these countries, 
they don't have that freedom. Sadly, with respect to um, our walk as Christians, we don't understand freedom. We don't understand freedom with respect to what God has actually done within our lives. The world has this idea about freedom is that you can go out there and you can do whatever it is that you want to do. You can live whatever you want to live. You can say whatever you want to say. As long as you don't hurt anybody, you should be free. It's an idea called libertarianism. Um, there's aspects of that that I agree with uh, because we know that the more laws that you impose in a society, the, lack of, the less freedom that they have. Australia has never, ever experienced this. You know, uh, we've grown up with very few laws that would constrain us, uh, but those laws are changing. Um, a few years ago, the government in power tried to institute laws that would restrict our ability to speak. We couldn't share our opinions. When I was 17 years old, I went to Yugoslavia, and uh, while I was there, I was with a bunch of guys, and, uh, and we, we, we were in, uh, in their apartment, one particular night, and we were having, uh, we were enjoying ourselves, and and um, and we were talking. And every single time they mentioned anything with respect to the government, all conversation went to a whisper. And I'm, I'm sitting there, blown away. What's the problem here? I mean, uh, why down to a whisper? And anyway, because we were indulging in some other things at the time, there was a certain level of paranoia that was increasing within that room and there would be noises happening in the hallway, okay? Um, and one by one, all of the guys, shh, shh, they, they stayed quiet. And one by one, they got up and stood near the door, having listened to the door. Their fear of their neighbour that may dob them into the authorities for saying anything. The level of fear that was in Yugoslavia at this time, again, we haven't experienced this. We can talk freely. Uh, I can be at home and I can talk about the major issues that are facing the world at the moment that are going on in Australia today. I don't have a problem with a, with a, with a police officer knocking on my door and taking me away. In other countries, such as Argentina, people that were taken away were never seen again. In Mexico, this happened recently. And we're talking about, you know, a whole bunch of students that were taken away and have never been seen again. They've never been seen again. It created a bit of an uproar in the United States when a mass grave was discovered. This stuff's happening all over the place because people aren't free. In Australia, we still don't know what freedom is. We still think freedom is to do whatever it is what we want to do. The Christians are struggling at the moment. They're struggling because we don't understand that we have a freedom. We have a freedom because of what the Lord has done. Chapter 6 gives us this picture of this freedom, but not a picture that, um, that we would necessarily think of. The first part, there's only three points to the message. The first part is what freedom is not a question that understands the claim. The second point is what freedom is, an answer that clarifies our state. And the third point is a freedom that must be reckoned. 
I have to forgive me because I've completely skipped my original introduction, which is more of a summary of um, of what we've gone through in the first three, first two segments of Romans. I'll give it briefly. The first two and a half chapters speaks about the ruin of man. It speaks about our state. It speaks about what we were before God. It speaks about the continuing depravity of a mind and a heart that's rejected the revelation that God has given us. The Bible says the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. But it goes on and says, For when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and the foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they changed. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man. And chapter 1 goes on and it says that God gave them over into vile affections. Right? Changing that which was holy and perfect and pure in the sight of God between men and women and corrupting it and making it completely different. Men with men. Working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that that recompense of their error, which was meat. Interesting. The recompense of their error, which was meat. It's promoted today that homosexuality is a perfectly natural and healthy alternative. And the Bible says that they will receive in themselves a recompense, a just dessert for their own error, which was meat, which was deserved, which is expected. And then chapter 2 leaves no one out of the equation. You know. Chapter 2 makes it really, really clear that even when you think that you're right, by the very judgment that you're judging others, you're condemning yourself. And the Bible says, storing up wrath until the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's what we did. So not knowing God and not realising that we're slaves to sin puts us into a position where we're sitting there judging one another and judging someone else, and yet we ourselves are condemned by the same condemnation. Can we escape the judgment of God? Chapters 1 and 2 make very clear that we can't. And then Romans chapter 3, the first half of it, it speaks about that, uh, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, no, not one. We're open sepulchres. We're, we're, you know, the poison of asps is under our lips. It speaks and makes clear that not Jew, nor Gentile, nor any person on the earth have anything else left to them but the wrath and the condemnation of God. Pretty difficult state. We call that the ruin of man. So the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans gives us the ruin of man, our current state. And then another two and a half chapters. Another two and a half chapters. From halfway through chapter 3 to the end of chapter 5. Have a look at verse 21 of chapter 3. You'll see where it starts. You'll see where it starts. Verse 20 makes clear the end of it. And it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. When you... When you when you share the law 
it opens up the eyes of those that are in sin to the knowledge of sin. To the knowledge of sin. So they don't know that they're slaves to sin. The majority of the people in the world doesn't know that they're slaves to sin. We spoke about that freedom, just touched on it, that everybody thinks you can do anything you want to do. Or what is it that they want to do? They want to do anything that's sinful. Or they think that's freedom, but they're not. They're slaves to sin. They're slaves to sin. They can't do anything but sin. Their minds don't contain the knowledge of God. They don't contain the thought of God. They don't even want God within their hearts. Why? Because they want to do what they want to do. What do they want to do? Anything apart from God. Anything apart. Their fear is a fear that um, they don't want to be held accountable. We don't want to be held accountable. We want to do whatever we want to do. I want to to do something and as long as no one else is watching, I'll do it. You know? It's only wrong if I get caught. You know? If I don't get caught, it ain't wrong. You know? It's only illegal if you get sprung. That's it. You know? Well, when the law is shared, you're sprung. When the law is preached, you're sprung. See, God knows. God knows the end from the beginning. There's no dark corner that you can hide in. He knows. You can hide yourself under a cave and you can say, rocks fall on us. The Lord knows where you are and where you're at and knows your heart knows what your thoughts are. But then you've got verse 21 in chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. From this point on, from this point on, it speaks about God's answer to our problem. It speaks about how we can be set free. How we can now live in a freedom that only God has designed. True freedom, absolute freedom, a freedom from sin completely and a freedom to live under God. It starts there in verse 21 because it's the righteousness of God without the law. It's not the righteousness, notice it doesn't say the righteousness of Eddie Judetti without the law. You know, it doesn't say that, it says the righteousness of God without the law. The focus continually and completely is on God. It's on God. See, there's things that happen to us, you know. We can be freed from sin. We can be set free from sin. We can be justified in Christ. We can be born again believers in the knowledge of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, for some reason, somehow, some way, we still have this vain idea and vain thought that it's the righteousness of me. I have to be good. I have to be right. I have to act and walk according to a certain way. Otherwise, who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe I won't be good enough to get to heaven. And we don't understand that it's not us. It's not you. It's never been you. It's not about you. You walk around your whole life thinking life is all about you. You're five years old. It's all about you. There's no one else you need to worry about. It's my toys they take away from me. I don't want to share. It's all about me, you know. You live in a bubble by the time you're 15 and 16 years of old. Sorry, girls. But it's true. It's true. You live in a bubble at that age. And if someone doesn't burst that bubble, you can be where I was, 29 years of age, still living in the bubble. Still thinking that it's all about me. All about me. Can't be more self-absorbed than thinking that it's all about you. Live in a bubble. 
It's funny though, because the air that you're breathing in that bubble is the same air that you exhale and it will kill you. It will kill you eventually. You need to have that bubble burst and you can't burst it in any other way other than by the law of God which demonstrates the truth of our nature and the truth of our sin. So now the righteousness of God is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So for the next two and a half chapters, the Lord shares the wonderful truth about his way of justifying you. How you can be justified in Christ. Right up until chapter 5. Have a look at the beginning of chapter 5. Chapter 5, the very first verse separates everything that's gone before it because now it understands that you're saved. And it begins, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, as, as Christians, especially as new believers, and, and you know what I'm talking about, new believers? It doesn't matter whether you've been saved for a year or 50 years. If you don't understand the doctrine of freedom that we find here in chapter 6, if you don't understand the justification that God has offered, if you don't understand that, if you don't understand that you can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, ah, you're still a new believer. You're still a babe. You're still a babe. Hebrews, poor Paul, he, 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 he can't share more of the truth of the wonderful depth of the glory of God because the people that are there are still babes and they still need to be fed with milk rather than having moved on to strong food to for meat, you know. And now we have in the text of the Word of God, I know the canon's closed, I know that. I'm not saying anything other than the canon's closed. We have the perfect Word of God. But you sort of wonder, don't you, sometimes, if there was something more that could have come out of that, Paul had to withhold himself. He couldn't say anything more because they weren't able to bear it. Being still children in the Word and in the knowledge of the truth of the Gospel. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, if I could be forgiven for giving a summary on the first five chapters of the book of Romans, please excuse me, Lord, if I do this wrong, but I would be looking at Romans chapter 5, verse 21, which says, That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The freedom to sin is not freedom from sin. That as sin hath reigned unto death, sin dominates the lives of most people today. Sin will reign unto death. There is an end of sin. And it's, and it's death. And it's death. But even so, my grace reigned through righteousness unto, a, unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. But have a look at verse 20 and that will help us understand the question that's naturally asked in first chap, the first verse of chapter 6. It says, Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded... Grace did much more abound. And then we have this question here in chapter 6. 
which is an interesting one. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Understand the logic that the question is posing here. The logic stems from verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Not recognising that it needed and required the complete, full, absolute grace of God, which had to much more abound to be able to cover the sins of the world. Not understanding that, distorting the text and putting it as, well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? thinking that the very sin itself was the cause for God's grace, therefore, to lead us to salvation. Therefore, if we continue in sin, then God's grace would continue abound. Don't get me wrong. Um, many theologians and a lot of commentators, they, they have what's called antinomianism, and they put it here at this verse. It's not entirely accurate, because strictly speaking, this isn't speaking about antinomianism. Antinomianism is, is um, anti, which is, uh, it's a compound word. So you've got anti, which is against or in place of, noma, which is the law. Okay, so something in place of the law. That is dealt with in chapter 6, but it's not dealt with specifically here. This is that section where it speaks about if, if this is a logical conclusion from if this is the way that we are saved, then we, if we go on in that exact way, then, you know, that's how we're supposed to be living. Okay, so if we're saved because sin abounded, then therefore grace abounded then we can continue in sin, the grace would much more abound. Okay, That's not against the law. Verse 15 is what you want to have a look at because that's where he says, that's where he says in verse 14, he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. So this is what replaces the law. This is pure antinomianism. Okay, that's where it's found specifically. But I digress. Let's go back to this portion here. This is the doctrine of freedom. Guys, I, I, what I'm going to be sharing with you this morning, I, I, unfortunately I'm not going to be able to give you how to live straight after this. I, I believe that if you can understand that we are dead to sin, that we are free from sin, if you can understand the doctrine that God is presenting here, first and foremost, understand that. Then the consideration for how to live will come later. We, we have another couple of chapters to deal with how we're going to live. Okay, The rest of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, and then, then chapter 8. This, this third section, this third segment, extends from chapter 6 through to chapter 8. Okay, And it's, um, it's a wonderful portion of the scripture. But if you can understand the doctrine, the teaching, that the Bible has here with respect to what freedom actually is. You know, the Christians today are struggling with sin and, and part of it's because they don't understand the word of God and, and we know, you know our Lord made that clear in, in Matthew 24. He said, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. And you have to have a look around. You don't have to look too far to see iniquity abounding. And the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is waxing cold. It's waxing cold completely. And so many young Christians, or Christians that don't know the word of God, are turning away from the faith because it's all too hard. It's all too hard. I've forgotten that the Christian life is impossible. It ain't hard. And we, our focus is the righteousness of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
What freedom is not is a question that understands the claim. Can you understand what's happening here? The, the claim that Paul is making is made clear by the very question. Okay, There's so many people here that believe you can lose your salvation. They think that you can lose it because you still need to hold on to it somehow. That somehow it's up to you to retain it, to retain salvation. They think that, that, that we, need, we, we need a stick. We need a stick to keep us good, you know. But that stick, you wouldn't have that problem. And that's the problem that we've got here is what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you think that question didn't understand what it was that Paul was putting forward? Paul said, how, how are we saved? We're saved by faith through grace of our, the, and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift that's been given to us. They understood the question. They understand the gospel with this question. But no, rather, we've got this picture of losing your salvation because you need to hold on to it now. Have a look in the uh, Gospel of John chapter 10, please, just for a moment. So if you can pick up the error that's considered here, and this will explain at least in a, in, a, in a really short way, in a summary way, what it is believed by those who believe that somehow salvation can be won or lost, depending on your own merits. Okay, have a look at this. So it's verse 27 we want to have a look at. Verse 27 and 28. Chapter 10. Chapter 10. Sorry, yeah. John chapter 10. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. If they follow me, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Is that right? Sorry? And. If. Oh, it's and. Is it? Huh. That's not what people that believe yourself, you can lose your salvation think. They think it's if. It says and, but they think it's if. They read and, but they see if. They look and they see A-N-D, but in their mind it's if. If. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. If they follow me, I give unto them eternal life. A condition for salvation. There was a book written a number of years, a few years ago, and it was shared to me by my sister Naomi, I think. And it was called, what was it called? Do you remember that book? It was a guy that wrote um, Conditional Security. Conditional Security. It's a contradiction just within the title. Conditional Security. If it's conditional, it ain't secure. But nevertheless, that's the title of the book. Conditional Security. And that's here. That's presented well here in this verse. If they follow me. But the text doesn't say if. It says the natural consequence, the natural conclusion of sheep that hear the master's voice is that they follow the master. The natural progression of those that are born again, that know the Lord Jesus Christ, that love him and that understand that there is nothing good of themselves, they follow the master. They follow the master. If you're born again, you follow the master. They follow me. And the gift that's given to us is eternal life. And how often shall we perish? When shall we perish? Well, the text says never. 
they shall never perish. But the main argument goes back to this first verse in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Pastor Frank and I had a blessed time about a year or so ago sharing to some Muslims around a table. They understood the gospel. They understood it. Didn't they understand it? They understood it to the point where, guess what? They asked the same question. They asked effectively the same question. Said, so you can know you're going to heaven now? You can know that you're going to go to heaven now? Okay, yeah. We can know right now we're going to go to heaven when we die. We can know, 100%. Said, well, if you can know that now, what, what, what stops you from sinning? Ah. Did they understand the gospel? Yes. Did they understand the gospel presented by Paul? Yes. They understood the gospel presented by Paul. It's the same gospel. Now, Paul didn't just say it once. He didn't just say it once. Go back to Romans chapter 3. Paul has a habit within the text of Scripture of asking rhetorical questions. He asks them and answers them. He presents the doctrine. A question is then presented as almost an objection to the doctrine that he's just taught so he can provide the answer. The vast majority of heretical ideas when it comes to salvation is asked and answered by Paul. It's asked and answered by Paul. In the book of Romans, it's been understood there's about 70 rhetorical questions. I haven't, I haven't counted them. Um, it's going on another authority, so I might be wrong. But there's a couple of them just here. Chapter 3, have a look at verse 5. What does he say here? He says, But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Speak as a man. Understand what he's saying? If our unrighteousness, if it's true that our unrighteousness commends the righteousness of God, what is he getting upset at me for? What is he getting upset at me for? He clarifies it again, second time. He says it in the next verse. He says, he says, at first he answers it and he says, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? Makes sense. Perfectly logical sense. When you're comparing scripture with scripture, you have to consider the logical consequence of what it is that you believe. Okay? So if my unrighteousness commends the righteousness of God, how can I be judged as a sinner? Why am I considered unrighteous? Well, Paul makes it really clear. Well, you, your, your idea is fallacious because, because how will God then judge the world? He can't judge you for your unrighteousness and your unrighteousness actually commends his righteousness. Well, how's he going to actually judge the world? There is no judgment. Well, back to square one, back to what the unbelievers believe. There is no judgment. Live, die, drink. Tomorrow we die, whatever. We can have a good time and party and do whatever we like. But he gives us the answer. Have a look at the next portion of it which says in verse 7, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Make sense there? Right? So, so if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie, why am I judged as a sinner? Makes sense if that's the right premise. If that's the right logical argument, if that's what Paul's teaching. And then they go on, have a look at that in verse 8, and it says, And not rather, skip the parenthesis for a second, and not rather, 
let us do evil that good may come. Let us do evil that good may come. See, the logical conclusion is if all our unrighteousness commends the righteousness of God, if my lie brings out his truth, okay, then, then well, hey, why not? Let's just do evil. That way good will come. So the natural consequence of one is the other. It's not just... Um, and Paul says their damnation is just. Other versions of this error, newspaper editor named George Nivol once wrote, it is only when one sins that one knows the forgiveness of the Lord. Sounds buffy, doesn't it? Sounds almost, there's a bit of truth there. So he wrote a paper claiming that he is therefore a great advocator of sin. All right? Makes sense, you know. It's only when one sins that one knows the forgiveness of the Lord. Therefore, therefore sin much. W.H. No? Auden, considered one of the greatest literary figures of the 20th century, he was a poet, voiced a similar sentiment, writing this. Have a look at what he wrote. He says, I like committing crimes. God loves forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Right? I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Notorious Russian monk Grigory Rasputin, who dominated the ruling royal family of Russia, taught the perverted gospel. That salvation came through repeated experiencing of sin and repentance. He argued that because those who sin more require more forgiveness, those who sin with abandon will, as they repent, experience greater joy therefore he reasoned it was the believer's duty to sin shall we sin that grace may abound believed by these individuals it was Voltaire that stated simply God will forgive sin that's his business God will forgive sin that's his business these are variations of shall we continue in sin that grace may abound all who hold that we are now free to sin need to repent and be born again. Paul says here that their damnation is just. Their damnation doesn't sleep nor slumber, and their damnation is indeed nigh. Paul suffers persecution for teaching that no amount of abiding in the law can save a person. He experiences persecution with this. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. After Corinthians... We'll find Galatians chapter 5, second last chapter. Verse 11. So it makes sense, you know, if Paul was preaching and teaching that, that um, you have to be good enough and then you can be saved, there'd be no confusion, would there? Would there be any confusion, you reckon? Do you think that being good enough gets you into heaven... There's no confusion, is there? Because everybody makes sense of that. They all think that that's clear. That's how it should be. You know, they all reckon that that's the way to go. Not understanding the depravity of sin. Not understanding that sin has taken up our whole nature. Not understanding that, you know, you could be sitting there doing absolutely nothing and you can still be sinning. Although you think you're doing nothing. Even doing nothing is still sinning. Here, he actually asks this question. He mentions this. He says, And I, brethren... If I preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offence of the cross ceased 
See, if he preached that you have to do something by the law, if he preached that you should be doing something by the law, why would he suffer persecution? You wouldn't suffer persecution. If I said that I had to be good enough to get into heaven, there wouldn't be a, certain, there wouldn't be a single person that would throw stones at me. Because, see, they believe the same thing. Everybody believes exactly the same thing. If you can be good enough to get into heaven, then there is no argument, there is no problem, and everybody else will know that that's logical, makes sense. But if all of a sudden the righteousness is taken away from me and put on Christ, I think we've got a problem. We've got a problem. He says, now, now, hang on. So it's not about me. I thought it was about me. You're saying it's about... I thought it was about me. And you're, you reckon it's God. Well, that's not really fair. Well, it is the only way. It's not just that it's not fair. The problem is you don't understand the sin nature. You don't understand how fallen you are. You don't understand that when you seek to do good, evil is present with you. You don't understand that the spirit lusteth against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit, that you cannot do that which you would. That's the struggle of a believer. The Bible says we're freed from sin. But this is the offence of the cross. The offence of the cross is exactly that. The offence of the cross is that, um, that it's not about you. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Second point. What freedom is. An answer that clarifies our state. Please read with me in Romans chapter 6 from verse 2. This answer clarifies our state. I want to read it in full so you, you understand it. I'll be emphasising a few words and understand what it's time to teach. This is the doctrine of freedom, if we can only understand it. From verse 2 of chapter 6. He answers first verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, God forbid. Just pause there for a moment. Do you understand that that which is abhorrent in the minds of people that think that you can go to heaven and yet continue in sin is abhorrent to them? You have to give them credit for that. There's credit for that. All right. The idea of continuing in sin and still getting access to heaven so, so I can murder someone and still go to heaven? Well, the Bible doesn't actually teach that. Right? But that's their mentality. They say, so you're saying that I can continue to do bad stuff and go to heaven. It's abhorrent to them. Guess who else it's abhorrent to? It's abhorrent to Paul. And it's abhorrent to me. It makes me sick the idea that anybody thinks that they can continue in sin that grace would abound. That's not what the Bible teaches. It makes me absolutely sick. And yet it, Paul says the same thing. The strongest expression that he could possibly use is God forbid. May it never be. God forbid that that's true. It can't be true. Ah, so we've got a problem then, haven't we? So if the logical conclusion of what Paul is teaching is that we can continue in sin, Paul's saying that's absolutely wrong. And he says this. Now he explains it. He gives the explanation. Please understand the explanation. Please understand what he's teaching here. He says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead 
by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, (coughs) we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is present, perfect tense, is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Future tense. Notice, might be, the future, might be destroyed. The body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. See, these people are slaves to sin, servants of sin. That's what we are. That's what we were if we're born again now. You are servants of sin. But now we should not serve sin because we're dead to sin. Practically, absolute, perfect, we are dead to sin. That he that is dead, verse 7, point, and this is the topic of the message, speaking about freedom, it's here in verse 7. That he that is dead is freed from sin. He that is dead is freed from sin. This will be expanded a little bit later on when we go through the rest of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. He that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? In this passage, there's 12 references to death in one form or another. Those who are saved are dead to sin. There's no possible way that we can live any longer there in it. No longer is our way of life identified as one that can enjoy and remain in sin. We are baptised into Christ's death. Our old man, our old nature, was crucified with Jesus Christ. It was not the sinful nature of Christ on that cross. It wasn't. It was ours. It was ours. He was a ransom for our sins. It's by his stripes that we're healed. As all our iniquity was upon him. And if it's true that our old man is dead, then it is also true that we are freed from sin. Turn to Galatians chapter 2, back where we were after Corinthians. We'll give more answers to these. I know that these bring questions. I know that they bring questions. They do. If you're a logical thinker, there's questions that are still brought up, especially as a Christian when you understand that you still struggle with sin. I know those questions come up. Please. There are answers to those, but please hold on to them for the time being. My my desire here is to pummel home the knowledge and the understanding that you are freed from sin, that you are dead to sin. You are declared that way in Scripture. Okay? If you don't understand that, you won't be able to deal with how you're going to live from this point on. So please, just bear with me with this. Chapter 2, have a look at verse 16. He says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by the faith of Jesus Christ even we have believed in Jesus Christ 
that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If it's any possible way that I can lose that which was freely given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ, then Christ is dead in vain. If somehow, some way, my righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of Christ, because that's the only answer to this problem, then Christ is dead in vain. Matter of fact, his death would be considered an unholy thing. Do you believe that salvation can come across any other way? You're in gravest of error and you're despising my Lord. It can't come any other way. Salvation is by Christ and Christ alone. We were dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible says. The Bible says, and you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses. You have he made alive. If we are now declared dead to sin before, we were dead to life. Before we were saved, we were dead to life. You understand there's been a transition. There's been a transition. There's been a massive change. Going from being dead to life before Christ to now being dead to sin. No longer slaves. Free. Free. Declared free. For seven years I was saved. I was born again in 1996. Sometime in 1996. I don't know when it was exactly. I know exactly where I was. I know exactly who was with me. I know who preached. And I know that I was saved. I know that something changed in my life. <laughs> the things that really stood out. I went from a man that never cried to a man that, well, someone broke the dam. You know. Um... And, and, and the waterworks happen then. And it's not the tears that save you. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not making that claim at all. But see, the thing is, I didn't know I was saved. I didn't know. I had no idea that I was saved. Some of you have heard this story before. It was only the other day that I realised that it was seven years before I knew that I was saved. You know that? I didn't know that. I thought it was a few months later. No. Seven years went by. Seven You know why? Because I remember exactly what I was doing. (laughs) I remember exactly where I was. I was on a building site. I know the building site. 
You know, I actually had to phone up a friend of mine because, uh, yeah, well, I'll say it anyway. He's, he was, um, I, I was, he was going, we were going to go into partnership together as a business and, uh, and, and I didn't want to be in partnership with him, but the assumption was already there. And he came to this building site and I had to tell him that he's a, he's a nice man, lovely man. You know, I still love him today, but I had to tell him that I didn't really want to go into business with him, right? So just before I told him that I didn't want to go into business with him, he asked me if I would be best man at his wedding. Talk about making a thing tough, you know? So I had to phone him up the other day to find out when he got married because I couldn't remember because I know it was pretty much the same time. He was married in 2003. So here I was, saved in 1996. He was married in 2003. Why was that important? Because he came to meet me on this building site and it was on that building site that I'm sitting there spinning CDs of a commentary on the book of Romans. I went through four chapters of it on that commentary, took four hours, and I discovered for the first time in my life, I'm saved. So I asked my pastor at that time, but it's not this pastor, this pastor knows. That pastor didn't know. I asked him, how do you know you're saved? And he just said, oh, you're saved. What? Oh, that's a fantastic authority, that one. I asked my brother-in-law, who's also a pastor, and I didn't realise that he was going through a struggle at that time as well, because, you see, he thought he was saved. He thought he was saved. But he'd been convinced by others that you could lose your salvation, so he wasn't sure. <laughs> he wasn't sure. He's the pastor of a church. He doesn't know if he's going to heaven or not. So he didn't give me the answer. Seven years went by. Guys, when you know that you're saved, it's like you're born again again. I know of people that were saved at a young age that they didn't experience the joy of their salvation until they understood eternal security, until they understood that they were actually saved. And all of a sudden, that's the point where they actually think that they were born again. They weren't necessarily. They were born again way back when. But they, there was no experience. There was no joy there. I, it was greatest joy in my life. See, logically, I understood that if you're saved, um, you can't be not saved. If, if you're, you're saved when you're taken, plucked out of the waters of sin and death, and you're taken out, not by your own strength, and you're put at home with the Father. See, a lot of us have this picture of the ocean liner and a life buoy with a sign saying salvation on that and that thrown into the water. That's got a theological problem, you see, because all of a sudden if the guy that's in the water receives the life buoy, he thinks he's got something to do with holding on to the darn thing and actually until it goes back up into the ship. If I didn't hold on, if I didn't hold on, I wouldn't be saved. How perverted we are. How perverted we are. No, that's not salvation. Salvation is that arm of God coming down and plucking you out of the waters of death and sin and bringing you home. And bringing you home. Salvation isn't a life boy, friends. You know? But you see, if you're on that ship and you've never jumped into the water, you don't need to be saved, do you? So if it's got anything to do with you, then there is no salvation. You can't even talk about salvation. You can't even use salvation in the vocabulary. King David's struggle with sin is recognised in his own prayer. 
in a time of utmost repentance in Psalm 51, he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. He was saved and made free from sin. At the time of his realisation of sin, Nathan the prophet said to him, The Lord hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, 13. Brethren, the Lord has put away your sin. He's put away your sin. You are dead to sin. You can't live any longer therein. You physically can't live in sin anymore. You are declared free from sin. You have to accept that doctrine before you can move on to understanding how you're going to live. You have to accept it first. You believe that you are free from sin if you're born again. If you're not born again, you are still a slave. You are still a slave and brings death. And the death that it brings is not just a physical one. It's an eternal one. You stand now condemned by a holy God. And yet God has done everything he can to make it clear to you in the first few chapters of the book of Romans that Christians struggle with depression. Christians struggle with depression. Until I understood that I was free from sin, went through ten years of depression. Depression today is affecting more Christians than even the people that are out there. It's affecting more Christians today, depression, because the Christians don't understand that they're freed from sin, that they don't any longer have to live in it. You see, we build up such a, such a habitual tendency towards sin, we think that it's still part of our nature, but it's not. It's changed. It's changed. So Christians not understanding their state and their stature, where they stand with the Lord, they sin and the Spirit of God within them grieves them. And they grieve. And they don't know why they grieve. They don't know why they're so depressed. And they try and put two and two together and say, oh, it's because of this person did this to me. Or it's because my life's not turning out the way I want it to be. And it's because of this and it's because of that. I had to look at myself and think, is there any logic to my depression? Why am I so miserable? Why every morning am I waking up in tears? Why? I don't want to go to work. I don't want to get out of bed. Why? It's because... Not only was there sin in my life, I had no way of understanding how to deal with it. So I didn't know that I was dead to sin. No. No. But once I realised, I said, Lord, life's not too bad. I'm enough income to, to put food on the table. I've got a wife who loves me, still. I've got kids who I adore. I've got a roof over my head. I've got a job. I've got an ability to be able to get to work and back. Why on earth am I depressed? And you know what? There was no logic to it, and I had to put it away. I'd say, right, there's no reason for me to, pre to be depressed. Whatever this is, it's some sort of a spiritual thing that I don't understand yet, and I had to put it away. And then I started to understand that I'm free from sin. I started to understand that I have a joy in my salvation, and that there is a joy. And from that point on, my life began to change. I still struggle with sin and I still get teary over it and I still experience the remorse that comes from it but it's no longer a way of life for me. You know, 
doesn't have to be a way of life for you. Know that you are saved. Know that you are freed from sin. And you'll experience the greatest freedom you've ever experienced before. Believe what God has said with respect to your freedom. Lastly, last point. I don't know how long I've gone. Anyway, I'll leave it. Last point. Last point. Freedom that must be reckoned. Freedom that must be reckoned. Have a look at verse 7. It says, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word reckoned is to be accounted. It's to count everything that's gone before. It's like an accounting term. You add up everything that's gone before in the doctrine that Paul has given. Everything that's gone before with respect to the nature and the knowledge of your salvation. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Your depravity and sin and how that has been changed. The place that God had taken, that the Lord Jesus Christ had taken in place of you. Becoming a ransom for our sins. Now justified in Christ. Account all that together and understand and know that you are dead to sin. Reckon yourself dead to sin. A hopeful thought. It's not a, I reckon I might be dead to sin, how we use it in our vocab. No. This reckon is something that's absolute. This reckon says that according to everything that's gone before, according to chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, according to everything that's been taught there, according to the very nature of what, what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, therefore, equate that down the bottom. With the equal sign down the bottom, and this is what it equals. You are dead to sin. You are dead to sin. Paul simply provides a logical statement here. And he says, that he that is dead is freed from sin. The word dead in this context is a complete and total and absolute separation. We understand what death is, don't we? We understand death is what separates you from life. We understand what eternal death is, don't we? Uh, eternal death is that death that separates you from Christ. Okay? There is another separation here, and that death is separating you from sin. Separating you, in a very real sense, from sin. first important and vital to know what the Bible says and believe it. Don't believe the lie that you need to feel saved. Don't believe the lie that says to you, I don't feel close to God. If that's true, who moved? Who moved? God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who moved? It's not based on our feelings, brethren. Our feelings are the greatest liar within our lives. My feelings left me depressed and miserable for 10 years. It's not feelings. One day you're going to pray and you're going to feel the wonderful joy and the glory of God. Praise God. Wonderful experience. 
But don't expect it every single time necessarily. Okay? If it's not there, it doesn't mean that you're damned all of a sudden. If it's not there, it doesn't mean anything that we are aware of. It's not your feelings that determine what's true. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. Do you believe it? Will you believe it? When we died to sin by our faith in Christ, there came together a spiritual and true union that takes part in all the elements of Christ that pertain to eternity. So that again, when we died to sin by our faith in Christ, there came together a spiritual and true union that takes part in all the elements of Christ that pertain to eternity. We joined in union with Christ that we may live as Christ does unto God. Unto God. The logic continued there in verse 9. It says, Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. Guys, sin leads to death. This is presented in the Bible really clearly. The death itself holds no negative dominion over those that are born again. To me, now death is a transition from earth to glory. You know? Like, um, yeah, you change your currency. You go, you're going to go to another country, and you you cash in one bit of currency only to get another one. You know, uh, but this exchange is eternal. This exchange is nothing more than just pure joy to be with my Lord. And there was an exchange. There was an exchange made on the cross. Your sin, His righteousness. You now have the righteousness of God. Righteousness of Christ put and imputed unto you. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. You can't live a life that's free unless you know that you are legally free. You can't live a life that's free unless you are legally free. When you've personally offended or wronged a friend or a relative or a neighbour, how truly free do you feel when you're yet to make it right with them? How truly free do you feel? When you know that there's animosity between you and someone else and you haven't done anything to make it right, you feel free? I don't want to see the person right now. I don't have time for them. I don't want to deal with them. You feel free? No. No, yeah, you don't feel free. I don't feel free. That's why the Bible says to never let the sun go down on your wrath. That's why the Bible says if you're gonna, if you've got an issue at all, make it clear. Make it clear right there and then. Otherwise, why? It's going to fester in your mind. Ladies, does that ever happen to you? I guess it happens to the ladies more than the guys because the guys actually just put it off. We, we don't care. <laughs> That's probably our problem, you know. So the, the ladies are lovely and beautiful and sensitive and the guys, well, you know, who cares? Move on. Next. It's all about me, remember? But you put it away. You feel free when you reconcile yourself with that person. When you when you go to them and you say to them, brother, sister, you know, friend, forgive me if I've made you upset. You know, I don't know what I've done. Help me understand what I've done. You know, if they understand it, then you understand it, and then all of a sudden there's reconciliation, and it's beautiful. That's when freedom happens. 
Freedom happens when you make it good. Not when you believe you're going to ignore it. It's exactly the same when it comes to sin. Okay? It's exactly the same when it comes to living our life in Christ. We have to be free in order to live free. You can't live free unless you are free. Those of you who have stuffed all your traffic fines and parking fines into a box underneath the corner of the left-hand side of the house in the basement, feel free. Do they ever go away? No. No, no, no. They don't go away. What you get is a lovely man or a lady coming at your door and knocking on it with a little sheriff's badge. I'm not talking from experience, of course. Ah. They never go away. They never go away. You can ignore a problem long enough as much as you like, but it never goes away. Why? Because you're not free. You're not free. You have to have those debts paid and settled, and then you are free. Okay? Our debts were paid and settled on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary, and we are therefore free. We are declared dead to sin. We are legally free from sin. We are legally justified. We are free. You know, what sort of freedom do you think an escaped prisoner feels? Think he feels free? Gets out of Alcatraz. Well done. Yeah, he salutes. Probably he salutes because he made it out alive. You know? Is he free? Has he paid his debt to the society in which he betrayed? Society that he committed his crimes? He's not free. He thinks he's free, but for the rest of his life he's going to be running. Stop running. Guys, stop running. Stop running. It's not about you. You're free. He that has made you free is free, makes you free indeed. Okay? And the truth will set you free. We see that in Scripture. Slavery was abolished in 1833, Emancipation Act in England. Okay? It was the end of Slavery Act in, in, in the UK. It was in 1833. It was enforced on the 1st of August, a year later, 1834. From that date, all slaves over the age of six were to be set free or gainfully employed for a time. In the United States, it was on September 22nd, 1862. It's the same act or a similar act. And it went into effect 100 days later. From that time on, all slaves were legal. All slaves. Did I say slaves? I did say slaves. Sorry. Sorry, just wipe, reverse, and start again. All slaves were legally free. All slaves were legally free. But you know what? Practically, not all the slaves heard the news. Not all slaves heard the news. From that date, they were legally free. But not all of them knew it. Some were never told by those who would have them remain in servitude. Some were never told by those who would have them remain in servitude. And so live the rest of their lives legally free, but practically bound. They live the rest of their lives legally free, but practically bound. In just such a way with those who pervert the gospel of Christ through the claim that salvation is tentative, and consider indeed the righteousness of Christ less than their own. You have those that would keep you from knowing you're free. But you also have yourself. If you won't believe the word of God, 
I've got nothing else that I can say. If you don't believe what the scriptures teach with respect to your freedom and that you are dead to sin, there's no other way for me to convince you otherwise. If the scriptures make it plain, if they make it clear, if everything that's gone before has reckoned to the point that this is the answer, that you are free from sin, and you won't believe that because you're still struggling and you just can't get your head around it, well, there's nothing else I can say. Don't worry about getting your head around it. Believe it. Believe the word of God. If you're not saved, you can't be free. You're slave to sin. Jesus Christ has given you everything that you need. You know God. You know it. Deep it in the recesses of your mind, you know that God is. And you know that you stand in an awful place with respect to his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I praise you and I thank you, dear Lord, for the word of God. Thank you, dear Father, for your work being done, dear Lord, and and for the scriptures being presented, Father, that we may know and believe the truth of Christ. Cement within our minds those words. Cement within our minds that we are dead to sin. Let us remember those. Let us remember those words, dear Father, and know that we are dead indeed to sin and that we may live unto God. And the rest, dear Lord, I know you will set in order. And I pray, dear Father, that as we leave this place today, that we could receive anew the truth of God, and that our lives may indeed be changed. That from henceforth, dear Lord, we will not serve sin. We are no longer slaves to it. Father, I praise you for your work. Open the hearts and minds of my brethren here, and if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ, or they aren't sure that they are yours, Father, I pray that you would continue to prick their hearts and help them know the wonderful love of God, that there is nothing taken away from them other than their sin, Father, that they may live unto God for the glory of the Father. We praise you in Jesus' wonderful name. In Jesus' name, amen.